Have you tried Music to Code By yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, spring has sprung here in Connecticut. It's finally warm. And you know how I know? How do you know? Everybody's sick. <laughs> Everybody's sick. Uh, there's been a wave of allergies. Like, the, you know, all the pollens come out. So I've been, uh, you know, I'm bouncing that fine line between being high as a kite on Sudafed and, and wanting to gouge my eyes out. <laughs> well, well in, in my world, it's everybody's got a head cold or a chest cold or snivels or flu uh, or, you know, maybe those are riding on the back of the pollen. I don't know. But who uh, knows? Yeah. it's just nasty. You know, that's what happens. It's a disease factory. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You're not going to believe what I got for Better Know Framework. So roll that crazy music, boys. All right, dude. What do you got? You know, Microsoft Visual Studio 2017 is an awesome tool. It is. It supports a lot of languages. Well, that's the CLR, right? That's the whole point of having a common language runtime. Yeah. And uh, the latest to go into 2017 is COBOL. Of course. From Microfocus. <laughs> Microfocus COBOL's been around for a while, but... They were part of the launch event for .NET back in 2002. That's right. COBOL.NET. Yeah, and I think it was Fujitsu then. Anyway, um, this is now in 2017. So the updated visual COBOL for Visual Studio 2017 includes code analysis, IntelliSense, autocomplete, background parsing, code search, all the stuff that you like about Visual Studio <laughs> with COBOL integration. Oh, uh, that's right. IntelliSense for COBOL. Object-oriented COBOL. Is it really still COBOL then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. A language from the 60s still haunting you. If there's no procedure division, it's not COBOL. Nice. Yeah. That's what I got, Richard. Awesome, dude. Who's talking to us? I know we're talking about careers today, so I went to show 1346, which is one we did with John Sonmez, where we're mm -hmm. talking about leadership in your career, always a hot topic and, and certainly important to a lot of people, huge number of comments, but that seems to be a theme when it comes to uh, those kinds of shows. And this one comes from Pierre Thalusima, I hope I pronounced your name correctly, mm -hmm. he said a comment was made on this show and others about deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about how that might apply to software development. From the beginning of my career, I've always learned by doing while, quote, practicing in my spare time. This was done by looking at different technologies, development stacks, etc., and trying things until I figured them out. It seems somewhat difficult to apply deliberate practice as a way to become a develop better developer. Perhaps I'm not necessarily talking about specific technologies, but patterns and practices may be more appropriate. 
Ideas that are presented in many different areas of technology instead of specific implementations, for example, message queuing, building APIs, applying repository patterns are all concepts that are important to most tech organizations. How do we as developers apply deliberate practice in a way that prepares us to be great in any organization? Hmm. It's an awesome question. And, and, you know, I think we've addressed it a few times. You know who's a great thinker in this space we've had on the show is Mark Seaman. Yes. You remember that whole conversation about, okay, I want you to build this procedure again. No if statements. Right. Constraints. Exactly. Creating those constraints. Because that's, you know, when you get into deliberate practice, and by the way, just for everybody's knowledge, Carl Franklin is one of my favorite examples of deliberate practice. Watching you practice guitar. Because you practice scales, you practice riffs, like you don't just play a song. You do that very deliberate for an extended period of time. I think to the point where you're vaguely unhappy. Yeah, that's right. Till it it hurts. It's an interesting story. Um, You know, after 40 years of playing guitar, it only takes about a half an hour to 45 minutes of scales to actually be able to play a gig and not suck. Right. But if I don't do that, oh man. (laughs) it's just not possible but it's annoying this idea of you've been playing guitar for 40 years and you still need to practice routinely to actually do the craft yeah well you know you have to keep your brain and your fingers talking to each other sure right and so i think the same is absolutely true of code like i know i don't write enough c sharp to keep it loose in my head right every time i have to sit down and look at some code for a while i gotta pull up docs and read and just get myself back in the groove Mm-hmm. Even SQL, which you've seen me write SQL, which yeah. I, and I've done for a very long time, it takes a little time to sort of loosen it up if you don't do it routinely. Well, you know, this is one of the great things about storage and internet storage in general is because we can offload the stuff that we really don't want to keep in our brains, <laughs> you know, stuff that's easy to look up. And yes. that's fine. That's yeah. great. Don't keep that stuff around. But do, your ability to think in the space, I think, is certainly valuable. Uh, so, Pierre, I think if you go through the catalog a bit and listen to a few of these shows, you get some ideas about deliberate practice. But the point about deliberate practice is to press against the edges of your ability. Yep. And one way is changing languages. You know, going and writing some stuff in F-sharp is interesting. Or COBOL. Right? <laughs> COBOL. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but also working just within constraints of your language or applying a different library, like you and I were having a conversation at the beginning of the show before we even started recording, talking about Angular versus React and yeah. realizing, you know, you could do the same forms over data app for the web, yeah. but with different libraries, and that would press against your skills. It would be uncomfortable. Yep. And and that makes you a better developer. But it would also give you a, a nice A-B for experiences. Absolutely. You know? Well, and it's interesting to find that sometimes certain approaches and certain libraries are just your jam. Like, you, as soon as you start playing with it, oh, I get this. This makes perfect sense to me, and off you go. Right, so, right. it is a pleasure to sort of experiment with those things. Sure is. So, Pierre, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We sort them with procedure divisions. What? It's a cobalt joke. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's 1990 all over again. Hey, uh, let's introduce our guest. Eric Dietrich is founder of Dead Tech, LLC. That's D-A-E-D, tech. He's also a programmer, architect, IT management consultant, author, and technologist. And he joins us here today on .NET Rocks. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. 
Absolutely. So we sort of went back in time a little bit there <laughs> and hmm. with the whole COBOL thing. And it just, uh, it, it's germane to what we're talking about because we're talking about evolution and we're talking about the evolution of not only software tools, but about careers and, and how development in general has changed over time. And man, I can't tell you how many sea changes that we've all lived through, you know, where things are going to be so different now. And, but, but it's really gradual morphing, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely seems that way to me. But, uh, you know, I kind of think of it as glacial at times where um, you don't necessarily see it happening, but it's very definitely happening. Mm. And uh, you'll look up and then uh, things will have changed out from under you. Yeah. And uh, so what do you think is going on in terms of development in general? And what I mean by that is, are organizations taking over our enterprises waning um where is most of the development happening these days obviously the enterprise is still thriving isn't it it is absolutely still going strong and a lot of the management consulting that i do involves going around and actually working in enterprises and kind of observing what's going on there and um the trend that i see happening is you have an absolute ton of software development going on in the enterprises but i think it is slowly you know glacially if you will leaking out and I think the uh, future will see less and less people working in the enterprise for companies that are not software companies. And the reason I say that is because uh, I think of, I can see a crunch happening um, where on the one hand, supply and demand is driving up the amount of demand for software development. The mm. world needs automation. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, you have in the enterprise an awful lot of management layers above the software developers. So in a study of contrasts, if you had just a small app dev shop, an owner and a handful of developers, and that shop were having trouble hiring, you could fairly easily, if you're that owner, adjust their salaries and um, you know bring in people, attract people. A lot harder to do that in an enterprise with eight layers of management because right. that's an awful lot of salary you've got to adjust upwards. And there's an awful lot of rules and regulations around the pay bands. So you have a lot of downward pressure in the enterprise on software developer salaries. And um, what I've been seeing is that those companies are more and more struggling to hire. They either have to offer sort of unique and creative perks to make up for the salary, mm. or they do things like rely on H-1B visa programs. And uh, that doesn't seem to be necessarily sustainable over the long haul. I'm seeing a slow progression away from these uh, organizations. Well, the incentive around the H-1B has got more to do with someone wanting to be in the United States, yep. I think, then it has to do, and you and you get to do it via software. The fact that, that mm -hmm. that's sort of a common pattern because we have so much demand. But I think I'm going to challenge you on the whole wages matter thing for software development. You know, there's plenty of evidence now that shows that software development pays well enough that your bills are paid. And after that point, the motivations are completely different. They are about autonomy and mastery and purpose more than they are about any, you know, you can't give a dev a bigger carrot and have him care. Hmm. I would agree with that. And there's another factor that comes into play when it comes to the enterprise. So salary is the carrot that they're used to offering. And, you know, in some cases, you may lure people away with um, larger salaries. That downward pressure on salary still exists. It handcuffs them a bit with that carrot. But what you've also got going on in the enterprise is a lot of organizational cruft. Um, 
So within the enterprise, they have such a huge risk surface area for litigation and the like that there's all kinds of bureaucracy around what tools they can use, mm. um, what they can you know bring to bear to the job, uh, how they're allowed to do their jobs, and so that's another factor that you know contributes and, and squeezes them out of there as well. So you really in the enterprise, um, if the enterprise doesn't bend over backwards to fix this, you lose the autonomy um, uh, of that triumvirate. So uh, in your book, Developer Hegemony, you talk about this, the future of labor. You talk about this, uh, this phenomenon that's going on. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think we're sort of, you're sort of creep, creeping onto your, your main idea about this book. Um, so what happens when uh, software developers need that kind of autonomy and mastery and all of that, and it doesn't jibe with the incentives of the corporation do you see that uh, it's any different now than it was 10, 20 years ago? It does seem to be different. I think that um, with the rise of the gig economy, that you have more and more people uh, perhaps aware that going off on their own or going to work for a small boutique firm is an option for them. Mm. It certainly seems that you see a lot more of that now than you would have perhaps 20 years ago. I can think of at the beginning of my career back then, it um, didn't really seem like an option to me necessarily to go independent. Yeah. How do enterprises keep their talent then? What are they doing? Well, what I've seen a lot of them do, and this is often the context in which I come in, um, they seek to do things like agile transformations or to introduce software craftsmanship or to introduce uh, consultants and, and people to come in and, and try to create sort of a startup culture within the enterprise. Mm. Um, and that that has an interesting kind of double-edged sword effect. On the one hand, it can achieve some definite benefit for the enterprise and for the people in that context. But on the flip side, it starts to show some of their more talented folks that you can make an awful lot of money coming to organizations as a software consultant and um, have a lot more freedom and autonomy. So it sometimes provides a runway for some of their more talented people to decide to go do something else. Right. They tell the software consultant to not have lunch with the developers just <laughs> just do just do your thing and go yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't let them talk to you and i think this whole thing when you get to be a contractor or, or consult in the consultancy role is you do have that autonomy and then the number one thing being you know firing bad customers when it's your employer yep. quitting your whole job is hard but if you've got half a dozen customers you can take the one or two bad eggs and go you know you should get somebody else to do this hmm yeah, absolutely. I think of that as the the Pareto principle, eighty twenty rule, um, and that certainly is applied to my life since going independent. That uh, you do have this ability to uh, to get rid of uh, situations that you don't like the way you wouldn't in a normal employed context. Yeah, and the other aspect of that is you get to keep working on new things. They're less inclined for you at that price point to m- get you to maintain a piece of software for forever. You know, I think a, a lawful, especially in enterprises, and if you build a piece of software for an organization, they expect you to maintain it. That's your job forever. And uh, that gets old fast if that's not what you enjoy doing. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it your, your aversion to risk? You know, I think it, that's what it all comes down to. How risk averse are you? Can you uh, survive for two or three months without uh, that paycheck coming in while you're trying to get your stuff going? Um, you know, are you the kind of person that needs to, would rather have a regular paycheck, even if it doesn't increase all that much, just because you know it's there? 
Um, certainly benefits are uh, sort of a problem these days. I mean, not everybody gets benefits as a, an employee. Yeah, I can speak to that a lot from my own perspective, because um, in spite of being independent, I'm actually pretty risk averse. So I took a very gradual um, approach and was moonlighting for a lot of years in addition to working full time before I eventually went independent uh, to the point where I had um, already lined up enough work that it started to become almost uh, more profitable or more risky in a way for me not to be uh, independent because I was turning down too much work. Yeah. Um but I would say that there certainly is going independent is difficult because you do, you know, speaking firsthand from experience here, you have those times where um, you have a month where everything dries up or you have the mm. sense, oh, man, when is the next thing going to come along? Um, for me, at least, that has – I don't worry so much about that anymore because the next thing does come along and I've um, uh, built a situation where, you know, I can survive down months and what have you. But if I look to the future, one of the things that I anticipate happening is that you'll start to see more and more organizations cater to the independent developer and to the small uh, boutique app dev firm. Mm. And I am anticipating that as the future comes along, you'll have people that help those folks navigate things like uh, figuring out what to do about insurance and about retirement savings um, and sort of grease the skids for the independent developers as they leave the enterprises. Mm. Yeah, it's baffling to me as a Canadian to deal with this idea that I think is a uniquely American thing around your employer providing you the benefits. And at, when you're your own employer, it's very hard to get those. No, things. it's not uniquely American. That exists in the third world, too. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually something um, we had talked about the, the book I'd written earlier, and I did a lot of research kind of into the back history of the corporation. And that is a very strange phenomenon that came about that marriage of health insurance and employment that right. I think, you know, has a seriously negative effect in the U S on the, on the gig economy. My wife right now, who's listening to this for consistency is going, yes, somebody agrees with me. <laughs> yeah. She's always talked about the, the problem being linking insurance to employers. Yeah. You know, I think if, if you like imagine in your head a different context, like, how absurd it would be uh, is to think about, well, what if you also had to get your car insurance through your employer? Right. That would seem insane. Why Why would anyone do that? That's right. I mean, you have the same car, whether you have this job or that job or the other job, and it just makes for big problems. Um, yeah. Yeah. Somebody I know who I won't say who um, has gone through, you know, 10 jobs in the last you know, six, uh, four or five years. And that's the way this person works, goes from job to job to job, lasts about six months, eight months, gets another job. And uh, insurance is just practically non-existent because, you know, every time they switch jobs, they've got to reestablish an insurance policy. And it takes its toll on the kids too, right? If you have kids that are dependent on you and what happens if they are hospitalized in between those times or, um, you know, start out with one insurance policy, they go into the hospital or, or something happens to them and they switch to another one. Guess what? It's not going to air on your side. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that frequency of job switching, it almost, that that's almost someone rather than a salaried employee that's behaving like a contractor. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It creates some serious complications for them as well. And Eric, hold that thought right there while we hear a word from our sponsor. 
This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. So, I, I mean, it, it does paint a little bit of a bleak picture. How can a software developer working in an enterprise sort of position themselves for a little more influence so that the, uh, they can, you know, protect themselves against all the stuff that's going on? Obviously, they can't change the rules, or can they? Well, I think in the broader, um, sense over the years, perhaps those rules get changed for an individual developer working in the enterprise, probably mm. not so much. But um, the one thing I will say is I don't see those jobs being taken away from them as much as I see them leaving, leaving. those jobs when it makes sense yeah. uh, for them. So I don't think that they're in trouble by a long shot because the enterprises, everyone that I go to and everyone that I work with is desperate to find talent. It's just a question of whether uh, salaried employment there makes a good landing spot for that talent. And the uh, the reciprocal of that is the enterprises are in trouble. Yeah. I mean, well, what they, what I see them do, and, and the reason I see this steady outflow is because I believe... Um, they tend to switch over to uh, employing app dev firms, staff augmentation contractors, and that mm. sort of thing, because they don't have rules there about salary bans and the like. They yeah. can, if they have the money to spend, uh, engage that way. Yep. And so I think what developers can do is start to think, if you're in that organization, whether you go freelance or not, start to think of yourself almost as a an organization of one person. Start to imagine yourself developing a specialty and thinking about how you would market yourself mm -hmm. and how you would talk to other people within the business if you were trying to pitch something. Right. Maybe instead of, you know, I know SQL Server or something, you can go around and say uh, that you specialize in helping um, make calls to the database more efficient or something like that. You start thinking in terms of a marketable problem that you can help people solve. I also wonder if this is just a normal oscillation, you know. We talk about software eating the world, and so effectively all these companies are actually software companies. Yeah. It's just that you don't figure that out right away or you don't understand that how you have to work that software is so deeply engaged in your organization. You try and keep them in the basement like they're just widgets, and they can have a better life elsewhere, so they do. But a company that loses all their development resources or is you know bound to a set of contractors that may or may not work with them is a company that's risking their secret sauce. Like, what is it that companies provide as value mm. to actually make money in the first place? I don't know that outsourcing is the answer to everything, 
rather it's a good answer to an organization that doesn't value software. That organization may not be around for very long anyway. Yeah, it could be. Um, when you talk in terms of oscillation, that's an interesting thing to project. If this trend continues for long enough, do those companies then actually kind of stop dithering and find a way to really make themselves a lot more attractive to software developers and um, give them that autonomy? Do they find a way to stop worrying so much about uh, getting sued and using open source software and, and controls and regulations around everything? And that could happen. You know, maybe you see an evolution there where um, the companies that figure out how to do that are the ones with the competitive advantage and the ones that don't simply go away. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, the question is, is it more effective to contract out and get the latest and the greatest at a higher price versus build that skill set internally to get it at a lower price, you know, depending on what the developers value? You know, certainly, you know, the, the whole advantage of the startup culture is you automatically get a certain level of autonomy and almost a certain level of purpose because you're building something from scratch. So those advantages become greater than maybe a limited uh, wage. And uh, I've never met a developer or very, very few developers that were really plugged into, I'm going to take options in this company that is someday going to be worth a fortune. That just doesn't seem to be a way most people think. It's, I really like what they're building here. I want to be a part of it. And if it happens to turn into a whole lot of money later, great. But yeah. that's not, does, again, the, I just don't see developers motivated by money near as much. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do startup uh, or office hours with um, a startup incubator and help um, startups with kind of a rent a CTO um, volunteer work. And the ones that tend to have the best luck finding developers are certainly the ones that appeal to them in terms of interesting work for them to be doing rather than, hey, we're going to make a lot of money and you're going to have an equity stake in this. So that certainly lines up with my experience. Um, in terms of consulting and striking out on your own, do you find that uh, offshoring, um, you know, outsourcing to um, cheaper countries is uh, still the problem that we thought it was going to be way back when it became a thing in the 90s, in the 2000s? A problem in terms of um, competing with um, me or someone in my position as a free agent? Yeah. Have you ever had somebody say to you, um, you know, all your stuff looks very impressive, uh, uh, Mr. Dietrich, but, you know, we're going to go with this firm in Bangladesh because they're 25% of what you charge. I have not personally had that happen, mainly because my independent practice has been a lot of um, software development training and yeah. uh, management consulting. So the offshore firms don't tend to compete as much with that. Um, in as much as I do app dev, which I do sometimes, um, I'll either do or run projects. I could see that happening, certainly. Uh, organizations seem, in my experience, to have such incredibly mixed luck with it. Yeah. Sometimes it goes well. More often than not, it gets them to a point, and then they have to kind of tear down and, and start over. Yep. Um, and I see that both with the startups I talk to and the enterprises. I see that a lot myself, especially with those who don't have the, the you know, that knowledge of that's what happens or the experience to guide them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't see that as being a significant threat to the independent software developer mm. um, that's uh, domestic or, or local, you know, to the organization. Is the whole landscape changing in terms of um, teams, in terms of online collaboration, um, more work remotely versus 
on site. Uh, I know that corporations that uh, were hiring consultants, um, you know, for the last 15 years or so, really like to have people on site. But now it seems like the remote tools are getting better. And also companies are a little more comfortable with people working remotely because they get stuff done. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It seems like companies tend to hit a a crisis point, if you will, where they're trying to hire within a region, especially if it's not a particularly large region, and they sort of exhaust the region. Mm. And then they, they panic and they throw the doors open to remote work. And I think that certainly has its difficulties that it presents. But, um, you know, in this day and age, I don't think that you can uh, pass on doing that style of work. And then, you know, I look at interesting organizations like the way GitHub works or the way uh, particular software works where they're remote first organizations. And I think they're blazing a trail and providing a really successful model that, um, you know, other organizations and large enterprises even are taking note of. Yeah, I think software development especially works remote because developers need privacy anyway to code. And so rather than spend money on an office for them, because they just aren't as efficient in, uh, in cubicles, let them stay home. But we, and we did this as strangely to great effect. But it, the other th- challenge then is team building is actually getting time together. So you've, right. you've got to have regular gatherings and that gets hard if they're very remote. Well, my team, uh, AppV Next, we have this incredible Slack board. And even when people are not on projects, they're all just juicing together on Slack and sharing ideas and, and joking around and stuff. And that keeps them tight. Yeah, it's about that secret club, isn't it? And it's amazing how much better the tooling has gotten yeah. to keep teams together. It really has. Yeah, that's absolutely critical. I think that, um, you know, if I just look at the course of my career over 17, 18 years that, um you've just seen the tooling for remote work come such a long way. It's, you know, there's even like for organizations um, that do pair programming, there's screen hero, you know, there are these applications that let you pair remotely. Mm, Interesting there. Yeah. Literally to code together remotely is kind of a cool idea. I've never done it. The closest thing I've come to is you and I working on a slide deck together, Carl. Oh, that was fun. Which is really a rush. Yeah, Google Docs (laughs) and uh, Office 365, these are great tools for collaboration. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to go find my red stapler. (laughs) You're really going to go office spaces on us, huh? Somebody's got it. I don't know who. I know who's got it. All right. Well, anyway. Do you know that swing line didn't exist? They I, I made know, that. Prop. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then swing line started making one because everybody wanted one. <laughs> Who knew everybody wanted a red stapler? <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Jorgen Sigvardson. 
Ah, congratulations, Jorgen. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Jorgen. Jorgen just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from Developer Express, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, we also like to ask our guests, Eric, if you had $5,000 today, what do you think you would spend it on technology-wise? Well, I've been a home automation enthusiast for a lot of years, dating back to having the X10 modules and the firecracker that plugged into the back of an old Linux box. I had those two, yeah. So... I think, you know, there's kind of an embarrassment of riches now if you're a hobbyist in that space. So I think I would go on a big shopping spree, um, you know, getting light control modules, temperature control, um, security, the whole nine yards. I think I could probably rack up uh, $5,000 worth of home automation equipment pretty easily. I'm pretty sure you could. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff, actually, if you go start spending that much on it. But, uh, You've you still got X10 in your house, right, Richard? Uh, yeah, X10 still drives the upstairs. We've gone all DC in the downstairs. Mm. But, you know, I'm, I'm putting together the uh, the place up the coast now. So yeah. being able to remotely trigger lights and turn up heat and so forth, you know, that that's absolutely a problem space I'm working in. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and having good fun doing it. Uh, I'm more, I'm enjoying the Insteon stuff and uh, mm. more more than the X10. It's uh, simpler, and we've got a lot more ways to communicate now. Yeah, the the thing about X10 that always kind of drove me nuts was that I couldn't pull the devices. Hmm. Yeah, that was always sort of a custom thing to be able to pull the uh, the stuff I put in. It was a I did a a bunch of the uh, Light Alir Compose PLC, which allowed for polling. Oh, okay. Also, because they um, piggyback on electricity, if you cross circuits, they can't see each other, right? Yeah, then so that's why we had firewalls, and it was just it was too complicated for normal people. I I could make it work, but I'm not normal. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And just sort of embrace reality. It's like, yeah, okay, this works fine for me. This isn't going to work for anybody else. So, Eric, do you think we're coming to um, a tipping point for lack of a worse word? <laughs> I think probably that if you look back on whatever's going to come in 15 years or something, I don't know that you'll point to any one point as much as a, a, a gradual shift in the landscape. But I think that maybe we will wake up one day and realize that a lot more of the business has gone out to custom app dev shops and that you start to see different modes of interaction between businesses, whether they're enterprises or other non-software businesses, but yeah. between businesses and between these shops, where I think, and and I frankly hope, that you're going to see a lot less of this action where a company draws up a spec and a bunch of wireframes, and they come to the um, app dev shops, or they come to these shops and say, I want you to build this exactly Mm. Whereas I think that you're going to see more in the future that these are automation specializing firms. And so they'll go and say, I need a website or something that will help me, you know, increase uh, remote customer orders by a factor of 10. You guys know how to do that. So instead of wireframes and specs and all that, why don't you guys who are the experts in this sort of automation help us with this business goal? Right. Yeah. I I don't find a lot of dev 
resources, external ones that are that business savvy. Yeah. They're still wanting to build code more than they are brilliant presenting solutions per se. Yeah. And I think that is a thing, you know, for the, the, um, the companies who gain a competitive advantage and uh, uh, companies, meaning the application development firms, uh, will gain a competitive advantage by starting to engage that way. I do see some um, boutique consultancies, and I've subcontracted for one, that um, that do engage that way. And it winds up uh, doing a lot better in a lot of cases than the competition. So I could see that trend um, happening. But you're absolutely right. You don't see a lot of that currently. No. Mm-hmm. Well, and by that same token, it's like how many people are running their own business because they want the autonomy, not because they really love the whole business side of this. I think it, it's sort of a necessary evil just to be able to live the way you want to live. They're not passionate about marketing and building out an enterprise and, and so forth. Like it's, it's, it's really challenging. Like if you're not passionate about business, why run a business? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I can relate to some of that too. There are certainly aspects of running my own business that, uh, you know, are not my favorite, like bookkeeping, for instance. <laughs> yeah, nobody, I don't know very, the few people that are excited <laughs> about that do it a lot. <laughs> but there are very few of them. Uh, there's one aspect of consultancy that uh, I think is shifting, and this is a, a move away from um, offering a, a team at an hourly rate and sort of being smart about estimating based on... Uh, based on the value that you're providing to the customer. Do you see this as a trend going forward? Because aren't, aren't the incentives kind of misaligned a little bit between a company that's paying hourly and a developing development team that's charging hourly? Absolutely. I have, um, in new engagements that I take on, I've really tried to steer away from any kind of hourly billing that I do because I couldn't agree more that that misaligns the incentives. It um, basically the longer you kind of spend uh, getting a given scope of work done, the more you profit. And not that a provider would necessarily do this, not an ethical one, but it's it's a strange incentive where if you actually are less efficient, you make more money. Um, yeah, right. So I try. Um, to tune my offerings enough that they're either consultative in nature or um, productized service oriented in nature where it's easier for me to offer up a fixed price or as you alluded to value-based billing where we can look at what I'm going to do for a client and figure out what that's going to do for their bottom line and then talk in terms of a cut, you know? So I had set a hypothetical example earlier for uh, perhaps we build a website to increase your customer orders tenfold. Well, if we do that, then it's probably, you know, fair to give me 5% of your first year's cut of that, for instance. So yeah, yeah, I I fully uh, embrace that style of billing. And also speaking to the idea of um, autonomy, you get a lot more autonomy that way. uh, Because if you're doing hourly billing, you're inviting your clients to be interested in everything that you're doing on an hour by hour basis. Yeah, you certainly are. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, the other thing is you can focus on being more efficient by using automation, by using, uh, you know, tools for code generation, you know, that kind of stuff. And I find that people with our level of years of experience have a lot better uh, outcome with 
code on you know automation and, and code generation and all those kinds of things because simply because we've done it by hand we've done so many of these systems before and we know where the gotchas are and what to look out for yeah absolutely i i, I do find too that in um a situation where there is a fixed price then i have this hyper incentive to figure out how to automate any aspect i can of what i'm doing exactly. and improve my efficiency yeah so why developer hegemony it's almost got a perjurative sort of focus, don't you think? <laughs> um, my intention with that was to be somewhat um, uh, provocative. Yeah, like the developers are taking over? Yeah, basically. That's kind of the – I view the book itself as a rallying cry to software developers to um, take more of a stake in their careers and – I guess I think of it this way. It seems strange that in the software development industry, software developers aren't the boss. And so I'm kind of encouraging us to become that. I just wonder how much that we could do within the corporation too. Because I think we're better able to move the needle of value for a given company more than just about anybody else. It's just a question of whether you're willing to own that value. Hmm. It's just an interesting idea to think beyond your salary and say, hey, you know what? I don't care about my salary. Let's create a bonus structure around the value I provide to the company. Yeah, I would love to see something like that. And I think, you know, it, we had touched on earlier that if it's going to be an oscillation instead of just a pure move from software developers to externalize, then companies are going to have to start getting creative with how they partner with and engage software developers as employees. And so this speaks to that again. If the companies can figure out ways uh, to empower them as partners rather than to treat them as, um, you know, line level employees. Uh, a lot of the corporate structure in the research I did for this is, is pretty vestigial from um, scientific management and Taylorism where you had um, the low level kind of grunts, if you will. And then you had this cast of middle managers and then the executives and owners at the top. And that is just kind of lumbered forward in these pyramid shaped corporations mm. that still exist where mm. developers are, cast as laboring grunts, even though that doesn't make sense for knowledge workers. So the companies that stop behaving that way, I think will see a lot more success in that sort of partnership. These decentralized uh, entities you see not just in corporations, but you see all over the place in organizations that, uh, and, I, and I really think it's just an outgrowth of the of internet culture. And how, you know, we have so many things at our fingertips immediately all the time. Why do we all have to get together in brick and mortar with offices and other expensive things when we can just work and communicate? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. There's a lot of, um, a lot of cost in uh, having and maintaining huge and often opulent offices that right. you know could go back to the uh, to the employees or or into other manners of investing in the business if you weren't uh, trying to get everybody all into one place. Right. There's something a little bit insulting about being told you can't have a a raise when you know you have to go get that message from somebody who's sitting in a you know a, a leather chair and <laughs> like big corner office that's costing bazillions of dollars a year you know yeah absolutely yeah misaligned incentives i think this is what is auto correcting itself um i mean and this is sort of what we're talking about yeah well we talked about it before about the idea that you're treating a developer as a cog yeah you know oh, you build you build web clients all right feed the web client cog right 
as opposed to, you know, and I think we're talking very DevOpsy now, right? That mindset of here are the metrics of success for the company. They, they, you know, they're financial metrics typically. Yeah. How is what we're doing improving these metrics? Right. Yeah, that ties a lot of themes together too. It, it empowers the software developers more if they're working with the business on, you know, what are the metrics of success? Um, what does that look like? And it also speaks to the, the idea of the value billing that we, we touched on when you're figuring out compensation and who should get what. It becomes pretty yeah. obvious when you're aligning those incentives properly. Yeah. I, in some ways, I think you, your initial description of the problem space had more to do with the symptoms of just not understanding the role that software plays in an organization and the kinds of compensation that the creators that are programmers are looking for. Mm. You know, having a strong impact on those things. I mean, the worst thing you can do that lock a, ba- a developer away in the basement is actually not using their software. Like, we really do care that our stuff gets used that makes a difference. So if once you could demonstrate that, that this stuff makes a difference and, you, and that you can make more difference, like we, I, when I do my DevOps talk and I sort of end on this whole, you know, where you get to when you've really got a good DevOps practice running an organization is quite a joyful place. It is really fun to come to work because yeah. you are experimenting on how to make the business better. That is the measurement, right? We're not presuming we know. We're not making huge plans in advance on exactly how we're going to do the next year. We're doing rapid fire experiments with good feedback that show that we're getting results. Yeah, absolutely. I think the having a tight feedback loop is such a source of joy for the sort of mind that goes into software development. And and that seems to be what you're talking about there. (laughs) I'm going to make an experiment here. I'm going to see what impact this has pretty quickly on the business. And then I can just kind of keep going and improving. Well, those metrics are built in purpose, right? Every, mm-hmm. Nothing more fun. You know, why do we like driving cars? You like making the needles move, right? Like just, <laughs> hey, look, this dashboard, I can control it. Uh, you said it, control. We're all control freaks. And we yeah. would be programmers <laughs> if we weren't control freaks. So, yeah, I think I almost so one way or the other, you're going to have that control, whether you do it externally or internally, if you're going to be successful. Yeah. So it's, it's almost a question of how it, may, it might be more challenging to do internally. Uh, and I'm thinking of a book now, another book. Uh, oh, it's Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup. Yeah. Which, of, of course, is a, you know, a, a Bible down in the Silicon Valley. But I would argue the most interesting chapter in that whole book is the one that says, so you're not in a startup. You're in a big organization. How do you do this stuff? Right. And just sort of that mentality of creating a tiger team, of of creating a sense of a, a small group within the bigger organization that's trying to make an impact on the things that are actually important to the organization. Yeah, I love that book myself. It's I think of it as applying the scientific method to business. And um, he talks almost exclusively about startups, but then he has that, I think, entrepreneurship chapter or unit where yeah. uh, that you mentioned. And there's no reason you can't apply those same kind of scientific method principles to a business of any size. Yeah, it's just a question of can you can you move the big machine that is your typical enterprise? Yeah, it's a big machine. Yeah, and from my time uh, in those enterprises, especially if you're engaged in some sort of transformational um, attempt, I've often thought of it as trying to steer a battleship. And you know, consultants don't typically dig in and stick around there forever. So if if you feel like you've turned it even the slightest bit, you feel pretty good about that. Yeah. All right. So you are a developer. You're in an organization. You want to break out. You have no customer base. You have no 
uh, source of revenue, you have no no way you can market yourself. What do you do? Um, Richard and I have talked about um, finding a pet project, you know, uh, like humanitarian toolbox, for example, mm. something that you can contribute to, something you can point to uh, that you're proud of, and say, "I did that," and uh, and that people would take a you know take note of. Uh, wh- what do you tell people to do? The f- what's the first thing you should do if you're in that position? Well, I'd say there'd be a little bit of nuance, I guess, depending on your own visibility. For instance, are you working for a a lockdown defense contractor where Mm. you can't talk about what you've done at all? Or do you have some flexibility to kind of moonlight? Um, So assuming you're completely locked down, I would, um, and and they might even prevent you from developing a passion project on the side like that, uh, depending on the nature of that organization. Yeah, I guess you'd get permission first, wouldn't you? Or at least see if it's legal. Um, but what you can do even there is start to figure out, um, kind of within the company, what's a bit of a specialty you can take on, what's something you can pitch, you know, to work on. And you want to develop a way to position yourself, um, because long before you go out on your own, especially if you're risk averse like me, you want to know what you're going to say to prospective clients. Um, I read a book on consulting recently where they call it a who and do what statement. I'm Mm -hmm. going to help who do what. And you can figure that out well before you ever strike out on your own and hang out your shingle Mm -hmm. and even start practicing that um, within an organization. Yeah, good advice. Well, it's an interesting book and and it's a great topic and uh, we could go on and on, but I guess we're out of time. So uh, is there any last minute uh, word of advice, call out, shout out that you want to throw out there before we go, Eric? I think the the thing I would say in general, whatever is coming in the future for software developers uh, that I would say is to um, you know, take an active interest in your own career and understand enough about the business around you uh, to always be improving your own situation. Mm. If, if you find yourself frustrated somewhere, um, kind of locked into a stodgy environment, there are better things out there and you can get to them. Very good. Eric Dietrich, thanks for spending this time with us. It's been a great talk. Likewise. Thanks for having me, guys. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got to transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a